You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2013. Today's episode is titled, The C4 Principle. For those who wish to manage organizations according to biblical principles, is there guidance in Scripture for how to hire people? May I suggest that Scripture does indeed provide this guidance. It can be found in the application of the C4 Principle. C4 is an acronym that stands for Calling, Character, Capability, and Commissioning. To develop world-class value, organizations must hire the right people. The seminal biblical principle for hiring is C4. By faithfully following this principle, management teams can properly build their organizations in alignment with the will and ways of God. This will serve as a safe harbor and lay the foundation for divine favor and blessings. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The C4 Principle. Uh, What I want to talk to you about today is the C4 principle, which I believe is a principle that Scripture gives to us to help us discover the destiny and purpose of God in our lives. How many of you here believe that you have a purpose? You really believe you have a purpose? Now, how would you go about finding that purpose? Uh, Well, not not just quite an active response there. Everybody thinks there's a purpose, but when it comes to Finding the purpose, it becomes more challenging. That's the typical response I get. So let me just make some introductory comments here. Have you noticed that the universe we're in is magical? It's incredible. You start looking at some of the pictures from the telescopes, uh, like the Hubble telescope. It's just breathtaking, some of the incredible things. And then you watch the birth of of a child. This happens to be my youngest grandson, who was born less than a year ago. And I had a chance to hold him within 30 minutes of his birth. Now that is just, um, it's hard to describe that experience. And seeing that suddenly there is this life that 30 minutes ago wasn't there. Now this life is in my hands. And I'm thinking, wow, this is marvelous. Well, if you believe that we are in a created universe, that Genesis 1-1 is a reality, that is, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, then you're on the road now to discovering something really marvelous about God's universe. Because if you answer the question, was the universe created or not, by saying not, then you don't have any other answers. You're left with with meaninglessness. You're left with emptiness. You're left with purposelessness. The only way you can have purpose is there must be a God who is working in the beginning. Because that lays the foundation for working to the end, which means he works between the beginning and the end. So I'm going to assume that you believe in a created universe. So did God create work with intent and purpose? That is, does he work with intent and purpose? And if so, is he still in charge? You know, there are many professing Christians today that don't believe that God's all that sovereign, that in charge. And so they believe that there's a lot of freedom we have to figure things out and and define reality. But I just want to just point you to Scripture. By the way, I want to encourage you, the only thing that matters in life is truth. And what I want to propose to you today is the greatest source of truth is Scripture. And so the greatest way that I can help you understand truth is bring you to Scripture. Would you all agree with that? I hope you would agree with that. So I'm going to try to ground everything that I say to you in Scripture. So we're going to go through a number of texts today, and here's our first one. 
Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. This is uh, God speaking. Remember the former things, things of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I guess you're aware that our culture is, does not agree with that. The politically correct position today is to believe that there are many gods. We call that pluralism. That is becoming widely accepted and has lots of implications for our culture. So our culture is deviating from truth. God himself, God himself has said, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. Now what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he's saying here is I define the beginning and I define the end. And therefore, I define everything in between. If you don't define everything in between, you can't define the end. So by saying I define the beginning, I define the end, he defines everything. And so he's saying I am sovereignly in control of my universe. He goes on to say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. So it sounds like he has a purpose, he has a plan. Theologians call this the meta-narrative. Have you heard that term, meta-narrative? Is that a new term to you? Okay. It's a good term. Well, that's good. Meta means great. Narrative means story. It's the great story. Uh, Another way to think about that is history is his story. It's a story about Christ. The meta-narrative is all about Christ. And so God is here telling us without any question There is no other God. There is no other story but his story. There's no other understanding of reality except through him. Now, if he's that intentional, that strategic, would he possibly give us guidance on how to find the intent and purpose of each one of us? Is he so personal that we each have an individual purpose to play in his meta-narrative? Is he that strategic? Well, I think he is too. So let's read the next verse in Isaiah 46. It says, From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So again, he's telling us, I have a plan. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to execute it. And then he says, it involves a specific being called a bird. It involves a specific individual called a person. Now, notice he doesn't say birds or flocks. Now, he could have. He doesn't say men or men and women or an army, you know, or a whole nation of people. He says a man. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think the reason he does that is to say he's personal. He's individual. He cares about you individually. He made you specifically to play a role in his meta-narrative. And until you can begin to discern that role, then you're probably going to be confused about life. You're probably going to be wondering, why am I here? What's the point? You may even think that you have options that you really don't have. For example, and this may be a sensitive issue, and I apologize for some of you if this is too sensitive, but Have you ever thought about the whole idea of suicide? You know, Isaiah Isaiah 28 addresses suicide. It says the people that commit suicide make an assumption. They assume that they can escape 
whatever's going on here that they don't like by committing suicide, and they assume that there is no consequence for that. Now, Isaiah 28 says you're wrong. You don't escape anything, and there will be judgment. Now, that's, that's a hard reality. It's a challenging reality. Now, some of you may have had an experience, like I've had, where family members have committed suicide. This is challenging, difficult, but we've got to face truth. We have a God who is very, very in charge of his universe, and nothing happens randomly or by accident. In fact, um, one of my favorite scriptures is out of Proverbs 16, verse 33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Familiar with that text? Now, wait a minute. Let's talk about that a second. Casting lots was the way that they flipped coins back in those days. Now, today we flip coins. Before athletic events, we flip a coin, don't we? To see who who kicks off and who receives. That's what we do. We think it's a random event. Well, Scripture says it's not random. In fact, another example of this is seen in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples, the apostles, now are 11 because Judas has committed suicide, and they decide they needed someone to fill his role. Because they recognize, we got a big job coming up. We don't fully know what it is, but we need 12, not 11. So in the process of selecting that 12th apostle, how did they do that? They cast lots. And they prayed and said, Lord, reveal your will through the casting of these lots. You see, they recognized that God was in that. It was not a random event. See, so we've got to begin to understand we have a God who is who's sovereignly in control, and we don't fully understand that. Is that okay that we don't fully understand God? Are we okay with that? So he can be in control, and we don't fully understand it, and yet we're still fully responsible. We are responsible to make decisions that line up with his will and his way. And our, one of our responsibilities is to discern the purpose for which he's created us. So let me just reinforce this by pointing out a picture here of the uniqueness of every one of us. How many of you have been to the Passion Play up in uh, Eureka Springs? Anybody? Did you go to see the potter? You didn't go see the potter? Oh, you should have gone to see the potter. It's a fascinating thing to watch the potter. He's sitting there with all of his clay and everything, and he is, he's forming these vessels out of, out of clay. He's got his wheel spinning, and he's doing all of his thing. And he can make a, a vessel like the one here on this picture, and he can take it off the wheel and put it there and say, okay, make one just like it. Can he do it? Not quite. Because every vessel is unique at some point. The potter can't do it quite exactly the same. Now, we know God could do that, but God appears to work like the potter. And that is, each one of us is unique. Each one of us is specifically designed for the purpose for which he's created us. All of our gifts, our talents, our personality, our opportunities, you know, our relationships, our resources, you know, where we live, when we live, who our parents are, all these things that are determined for us largely... Who here defined who, who's, who would be their parents? Anybody define your parents? Okay. Did you find whether you'd be male or female? Okay. Whether you have hair or not have hair? Would you find that? No, there, there are a lot of things we don't define that just happened. You define when you were born, where you'd be born. No. How about your personality? No, you didn't define that. How about your gifts, your talents, the things you do well, the things you don't do well? No. Now, you can develop some of those, 
But you, your spectrum of aptitudes has been uniquely placed into you by God. So you say, wow, what, why is that? Why did he give me this personality, these parents? Why did he give me you know, life at this time and this place with this circumstance? Why did he do all that? Well, he is orchestrating his meta-narrative, and each of us has a role to play. Now, I want to read you a text here, and we're going to read the full text here a little later, but I just want to point you to Ephesians 2.10. Okay? This is a text that I think tells us probably more profoundly than any other text why God saved you. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and I'm assuming this group, everyone does, you wouldn't be here if you, you didn't, I don't think. Uh, I may, there may be an exception to that, but I think you, it's safe to say you guys know Christ. So if you know Christ, then why are you saved? Is it to populate heaven? Nah, probably not. You, you know, there's a question about you know, when, when it's all over. When, when the new heaven and new earth comes, where is Jesus going to be? Have you read the end of the book? In the new, cre- new heavens and new earth? Where is Jesus? He appears to be on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to be with him. You know, so very likely, if we're going to be with him, we're going to be on this new earth. And so we keep talking about going to heaven. And yet, you know, you look at scripture and say, well, where does it talk about that? Well, there's some vague allusions to it, but it doesn't seem to give clarity that that's what's going to happen. Rather, what's probably going to happen is we're going to be part of ruling God's new creation. And what we're learning now is the stewardship skills to rule. And so we have activities here that he's called us to do. And part of those activities are to build stewardship skills. And we do that through doing the work assignment he's given us. So let me suggest that Ephesians 2, 10 tells us why we're saved probably as profoundly or more profoundly than any other text. Now, you all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, don't you? Many of you probably have preached sermons on it or taught on it. You've heard sermons on it. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We clear. Nobody can save themselves. You are saved solely by the grace of God expressed through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can be saved. Even your faith is not a work. Your faith is a response to the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in you. And the way someone evidences the reality they've been born again is they now express faith in Christ. Okay, so that's the predicate. Now, then he says, for, for, we are God's workmanship, like the potter. He's made us individually, like the potter makes the pots. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see that? You've been created individually. You've been created uniquely. Now, we many times have misunderstood this term, good works, here. Let me just take a moment. I was going to do this later, but I'm going to go ahead and do it now. This word, good works, is the Greek word agathos ergon. Does anybody know Greek? Nobody's had Greek? So I can tell you, and you won't know if I'm telling you the truth, right? I'm going to do my best to tell you the truth, okay? I've been studying this for some time. 
I've, been, I've studied Greek for a long time, so I have some knowledge of Greek. All right, so agathos ergon is a very interesting term. Agathos is one of two Greek words that's translated into English good. Did you know there are two words? Two words, yeah. And these two words are used in the same verse in Matthew chapter 7. When it says, a good tree bears good fruit. Okay, you remember that verse? And the context of that is, how do you tell someone who's genuine from someone who's false? Remember, that's the discussion. How do you tell the real deal? How do you tell a real Christian? How do you tell a real teacher? How do you tell a real pastor, a real apostle, a real prophet? How do you tell these people? Well, a good tree bears good fruit. Well, here we have the two words for good used in the same verse, which gives us a big clue. So the first word for good is agathos. The second word is kalos. So now, let me read it. Let me tell you the verse using those two words. An agathos tree bears kalos fruit. Do you hear that? An agathos tree bears kalos fruit. So that seems to suggest that an agathos tree is something that's inherently, intrinsically good, intrinsically healthy, intrinsically sound, intrinsically operating the way God designed it to operate. And something that's kalos is an evidence, it's fruit that bears witness to the soundness of, from, from which it came. So that's, that seems to be the sense. So an example of this is if you get, if you go to an apple tree and you pull an, an apple off and you taste it and it's really good, what does that tell you about the tree? It's a sound tree. It's a good tree. See, that's the point. So Greek has a way to express something that in English we kind of lose sight of. So in this text here, we have the word agathos. So it's referring to works that are rooted in someone who is sound spiritually, lined up with the will and ways of God. So that's agathos. Now, works, now most of us, we read that, we think of good works as something like helping an old lady cross the street, or maybe going on a mission trip, or maybe volunteering uh, to be part of the parking lot patrol at your church service. You know, those are good works is what we think. And those are fine, but that's not the limit of what this text means. This word, aragon, refers to all kinds of work activity. It doesn't matter what you do, it's your aragon. Whether you're a farmer, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a physician, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a manager, a salesman, whatever you do, it's your aragon. So it's referring to all kinds of work. So here, what we have is Jesus is telling us why we're saved. It's so we can fulfill that for which we've been created to do. And we've been created to do, do this, all these kinds of work activity that should reflect the goodness of God in us in how we do it. This is why we are supposed to work and be the great workers, the best workers. Now, I, I'm working with a man right now that he's probably 50 years old. And he has been struggling under a false impression of reality. He thought the only way to do good works had to do with something going on in church. I said, well, you certainly want to do good works in the church, but that's not the limit of it. Can we broaden your perspective? In fact, God has called you into the workplace, 
and he wants you to do agathos ergon there. That's where you're called. That is where you have been assigned. And if you don't do that, you know what happens? It makes Christ look bad. Now think about that. Now, how many of you have worked in the workplace? Okay, many, most of you have. Now, did you have to go tell people you were a Christian? I did. You did? But did you have to tell them that? Uh, no. They could have probably figured it out by themselves. In fact, they start scoping you out. They start looking at how you're living, the decisions you make, how you speak, you know, what's important to you, how you tackle problems, you know, whether you're loyal or not and faithful. They look at your value system. And without you ever telling them anything, they pretty well size you up. If you look like Christ, you know, hey, that makes him look good, doesn't it? If they size you up as being a Christian because you go to church, but you don't work consistent with Christ, what does that do? Makes you a hypocrite. And who loves hypocrites? Nobody loves hypocrites. In fact, that makes your profession of faith in Christ look bad. In fact, I've heard people say, I'm not going to hire any Christians. They're lousy workers. Have you ever heard that? Oh, that's a common deal. There, there, I know many people that will not hire people that profess to be Christian. So if you want to get hired at their company, you don't go tell them, I go to church. You don't do that. You don't go in there and talk about the Bible. No, you, they're not going to hire you because they've already had experience with your brothers and sisters that didn't work according to this text here, didn't demonstrate Christ. And so what happened was now it made Christ look bad and they don't want anything to do with Christ. Not only at work, in any area of life. So what we're called to do is we're called now to work agathos from a sound spiritual base, being in communion with God, walking out his will according to his ways in everything we do. This is why you're saved. See, we keep thinking we're saved so we won't go to hell. We're saved so we won't be punished eternally. Well, there's truth to that, but that's not the limit. You see, we keep limiting God's perspective. His perspective is so much bigger than ours. We are saved so that we can be his expressions. We can bring his rule and reign into whatever jurisdiction he's called us to walk in. And so this text here is telling us that God has a plan. You see this whole thing prepared in advance for you to do, for us to do? That's a plan, isn't it? That's God's meta-narrative. We have been created in Christ Jesus for a work assignment in his meta-narrative that's supposed to be done with such excellence that it makes him look good. That's what we're here to do. Wow. So now you begin to see God is so much bigger than I thought about how he's working and what he's doing. So how do we respond to this? Well, we have a responsibility to discover our race and to run our race. Now, I'm using that terminology because that's this terminology Scripture uses. Look at Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are those witnesses? The people of faith that have already lived and died before us, for us. So we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God has got a specific race marked out for you. He created you to run that race, and he wants you to do it with such integrity and such faithfulness and such dependence on him that anybody looking at you sees Jesus running. And it doesn't matter what your race is. God's assigned you your race, 
and it's the race he wants you to run in his meta-narrative. So this, this makes God so much bigger. He is involved in everything. He has created everything. There's nothing that exists that he hasn't created. Now, man abuses things and misuses things and distorts things. Our job here is always to bring man back to alignment with the will and ways of God. So wherever you're assigned, you're there as emissary to bring forth his rule and reign, to bring forth alignment with him. So we have a race to run. So our job is to find our race. And do you think God would be good enough that he might give us some clues as to how to find our race? You think so? I think so too. So I want to give you a principle that I'm going to show you in about six different texts of Scripture that I believe will help you find your race. It's the C4 principle. And I'm going to give, you, I'm going to give it to you. We'll talk about it n- numerous times over. Do I have another hour? Is that what I've got? How much time do I have? I'm showing 2.30. Okay. She didn't answer, so I'm going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> 3.15, i got 45 minutes. Okay, we'll have to hurry then, I can tell. The first C is calling. The second C is character. The third C is capability. And the fourth C is commissioning. Calling, character, capability, commissioning. Okay, so now I'm going to show you some texts of Scripture where this is found. All right, the first text is Exodus chapter 35, verses 30 through chapter 36, but verse 2. Now, this happens to be a record of God's directive for building the tabernacle. So God wanted to build the tabernacle. He had to hire people to do that. So what principle would he use to hire people? That would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? How does God hire people? How many of you hire people here? Okay. How many of you have hired people in the past? A number of you have. Okay, good. So have you ever thought about how God hires is that a new thought to you? Yeah, that's a new thought. Most of the time, what, what do we do when we start thinking about hiring people? Is, okay, let's sit down and write, write our job description, you know, and let's find out who's got the skills to do this. Isn't that what we do? Yeah, yeah that's generally the way we approach it. That's the way the world approaches it. You see, one of the problems we have as Christians is when we don't find scriptural truth to guide us, we default to what? Worldly thinking. See? And that's what's happened. Is we've largely, when it comes to the workplace is we have defaulted to worldly thinking because we think that God doesn't speak to that. In fact, the world has come up with what, we, what they call best practices. Have you heard the term best practices? Okay, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, it's uh, about oh, a year ago or so, uh, there was a lady that was looking to associate with a consulting practice, and she found me some way. And so she writes me this email and tells me, ex- extols her virtues and all the things that she knows, and how she builds everything on best practices. Well, as soon as I saw that, I knew she had not really read my website, even though she said she did. So I responded to her email. I said, you know, thank you for the communication. I appreciate it. I want you to know I do not believe in traditional best practices. I do not believe that is truth. The only way that I would take a best practice that is commonly accepted and accept it myself is it has to pass through the filter of a biblical worldview. If it passes through that filter, then it's acceptable. So for me, the best practices are biblical best practices. Anything else is kicked out. I said, if you still want to talk, let me know. I never heard from her. She probably had no idea what to do with that because we we're not talking at that level. We, we have largely given over 
the business world to the enemy. And we think it's okay. And there's nothing in the Scripture that gives us permission to do that. In fact, Scripture says we are responsible to do all kinds of work activity and bring forth the rule and reign of God wherever we go, which means we bring a biblical perspective to everything. So here's one more thing we could do. We could begin to think about hiring from a biblical worldview. So this is a text. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time here. It says, Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Ur, of the, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he's filled them with the Spirit of God, with skill and ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. So you can see here is the beginning of the discussion about how you hire people. And you can see that the first element of this is calling. See, the Lord has chosen. See, if you're called, you have been chosen ultimately by God, but he may use a human agent to exercise his choosing. And we'll see that in a little bit. But here he's saying specifically, I have chosen Bezael. And he's going to use Moses as his agent to, to tap him and say, you're the man. Now, calling has two aspects to it. There's first the calling of the, the external aspect, which is the caller. If you've been called, that means you're a callee, which implies there is a caller. Okay? So you've got a caller and a callee. So the caller is God, the callee is you. So that's the external aspect of calling. There's another aspect of calling, which I think is absolutely one of the greatest gifts that God can give mankind, and that's the internal aspect. So I want you to slide down toward the bottom, the last sentence there. It says, Then Moses summoned Bezael and Eliab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come do the work. Now that word willing there is probably a little weak in, in translation because, you know, willing to us is like, you know, it's kind of a Casper Milk Toast kind of term. You know, if you're willing, come do this. It's, the Hebrew is much more intense. The Hebrew is the word lieb. Now, lieb refers to the heart. The implication is passion. So what this suggests to me is that God puts in you an internal passion to do what he's externally calling you to do. So now you're, this ex- internal passion and this external call mo- fuse together, and that's the aspect of calling. Internal, aspect, internal and external aspects of that one idea of calling. So then you, then you have the second characteristic is, is uh, character. It says he was filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, how many of y'all have done a construction project? None? Yep, I grew up doing construction projects. Now, did you put on your criteria when you hired people that they had to be filled with the Spirit of God to work for you? You didn't do that? Well, God did. You're going to build a tabernacle? You're going to be filled with the Spirit of God. I said, whoa. Now, do you think somebody filled with the Spirit of God has got impeccable character? I think, without a doubt, they've got impeccable character. So, and let me suggest this. People have asked me, you know, many questions about C4, you know, what my thoughts are. As I've pondered this for well over a decade now and taught it many, many times, reflected on it, read scripture about it, my conviction is that the most important element of C4 is character. If you don't have godly character, you will be very limited in your ability to discern the will of God for your life. You will be blocked. You will be impaired. So this is so critical. When people come to me with, with 
job issues and career decisions and anything, the first thing I want to do is I want to pray that Christ would be formed in you. I want to pray that you grow and mature in Christ because God is an assignment for you. In fact, people come and sometimes to our marketplace prayer at our church and they'll ask us to pray for a job. And we tell them very politely, we don't pray for jobs. I said, what? This is a marketplace prayer. And I said, yep, it's a marketplace prayer. Why don't you pray for jobs? Because we believe that the idea of a job is something you have to do. We think the biblical concept is you have an assignment, something God has ordained for you to do, something you have been called to do, something you get your pleasure and delight in doing because you, you are bringing the kingdom of God to that workplace assignment. So that's how we're going to pray for you. Alignment with your assignment. And the first thing that needs to happen is Christ has got to be formed in you. We've had some people say, well, don't pray for me, which tells me there's not much life in them. So I said, well, now I know how to pray for you. I want to pray that you come to Christ. <laughs> That's how I'm really going to pray for you, because until you come to Christ, it's really hard for you to do what you're called to do. It's hard for you to find it. So I think this is the most important element. All right, the second thing is capability. Now, this is the most obvious one. This is what the world figures this out. You know, you don't, you don't hire you know, a, a cook to fly an airplane. You hire a cook to cook. You hire a pilot to fly an airplane, right? So, you know, you hire people to some degree based on their skill and ability. But that's just one of the elements. That's not the whole thing. And there's several references to that here. And finally, let me focus on the last element, which is commissioning. Commissioning is probably one of the least understood because we're in a culture that's largely very independent. Everybody's doing their own thing. We don't think about commissioning. Well, take a look here at the, the, the highlight there toward the end. So it says then, So busy out Eliab and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. God is an authority figure commanding, giving direction. That's what commissioning agents do. They give direction. They set context. They define success. They define direction. They give you strategy so you can go do what you're called to do. So this is the C4 principle here in this particular text. Now let me go on and show you some more text. Okay, how about, uh, is that the next one? Let me see if that's the next one. Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. Creative work. How many of you are Creative. A lot of you are creative. Do you think that there, maybe the C4 principle would work for that too? Is that possible? Okay, well, let's just take a look. This is out of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to just read the part that's highlighted here. This is, this is Saul being tormented by the evil spirits. And somebody said, hey, what you need to do is find somebody that can play the harp real well, and that will drive the spirit away. Great. Okay, so Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking. And the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent him with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. So do you see the C4 principle there? Can you see that in that text? Let's just take a look here. So first of all, Saul issues a call. Find someone. 
That's a call. Find someone. Find someone who plays well and brings them to me. Well, playing well is obviously capability. Okay? One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehem, who knows how to play the harp, capability. He is a brave man. What's that? That's character. It's interesting to me that a musician needs to be brave. Thought about that? Well, further, it goes war. And a warrior, too. Now, what's that? That's probably capability, but I'm sure there's a lot of character traits that go into a good warrior. You can be a soldier, you can be a warrior. And they're different, aren't they? A warrior is somebody that's really a good soldier. So that, what makes him a, different from a soldier is what? Character. Better character. Okay, so we have somebody very interesting here. He speaks well. What's that? Capability. All right. He's a fine-looking man. What do you think that is? What would make you a fine-looking man? How about good character? Have you noticed how people, when they mature in Christ, their countenance changes? Have you seen that? I've got a father-in-law who's a, a very godly man. He's walked with God for 70 years. His face glows. His face glows. You think, well, let's put a veil over it. You know, it's getting too bright. I mean, so there's a tangible expression of the godliness in him. Well, I think, I think that this is a testimony to the character that's in him. He goes on, and the Lord, the Lord is with him. What's that? The Lord is with him? Spiritual maturity, isn't it? The Lord's with people that are, with, that are inclined to him. So another statement of character. <clears throat> then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son. So that's the call, who was with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David called to Saul and he entered his service. What's that? Commissioning. He entered his service because invited by Saul, called, and now you get here now, you're in my service. You're commissioned. So you see the principle here again. And notice now here how a father is involved. This is important to see. This is another one of those things we don't get today because we don't understand the role of fathers very well. Another point of conviction I'm coming to as I'm studying this whole field is the power of fathers to release destiny in children. Not only natural children, spiritual children. Have you seen the movie The King's Speech? You've seen that movie? Here you have King George VI who is, whose father was not, not a real highly functional father. But he was the father he needed to be in line for the king, to be king of England. So he had to have that father. And then how, how did God deal with the deficiencies of that natural father? What did he do? He brought in a spiritual father. Now the spiritual father comes in and he begins to heal the son of the wounds from the natural father. Now the spiritual father wasn't perfect. Neither one of them were perfect. But God took you know, the, the assets out of both the natural and the spiritual father and put them together and heal the son so the son could do what he was called to do. You see that? This is how God works. So fathers are huge. They're very important. So here you have Jesse recognizing the call of God on his son, so he's getting everything ready. He's investing in his son. He's sending his son out. He's affirming this is the call of God. He is commissioning his son to go, and Saul is commissioning him to enter. See, this is, this is the power of how God works. When we start working according to the way he works, he uses these authority figures in our lives 
to guide us and direct us into the call of God for our lives. Okay, how about business? Let's talk about business. Would God possibly use the C4 principle to guide us in business? Would that be possible? Okay, so let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. Now, you may be familiar with this text. This is the early days of the formation of the church, the universal church. And in those days, there were, it was largely the Greeks, excuse me, largely Jews, some of whom were from the Greek countries, some of whom were in Jerusalem. Now, you remember why there would be Grecian Jews? Why were the Israelites scattered? Their sin. They disobeyed God, and their penalty was they were scattered all over the known world. And so periodically they would come back to celebrate the feast, and they were there together on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit shows up. So they got, they got some of those people came to Christ that day as well as the local uh, you know, people that lived in Jerusalem. So you had this blend of Jewish people, some of whom live locally, some who are not local, but they're all together in the church. And what's happening is, as they're living together, they're sharing things together, and some things are not happening as they should. So in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now let me just comment here quickly. This word, distribution of food, is not in the text. It's not in the text. The word, the Greek word, is diakonia. Diakonia is the word we translate ministry. What it means is executing the commands of another. That's what the term literally means. So it really should say, but but these widows were being overlooked in the daily ministry. Now, we, we know more specifically what that he's referring to in the next sentence. Okay, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be for right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. Now let me stop there just for a moment and say this. That word, the ministry of, is not in the text. That's the translator's understanding. It literally is, it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. So now he's telling us that this ministry that is in a prior sentence is waiting on tables. You see that? Does everybody follow that? You, gotta, you need to follow this. It gets, I know it's a little tricky here, but you've got to follow this to see what he's saying here. Because the translators, see, most of these translators didn't really have a holistic view of God when they translated this text, and so they, their bias comes through in their translations. So with all due respect to these men, and I know some of these men that did this, and I love these men, they, I think they just didn't quite get it here. So <clears throat> what you have here is he's telling us that the daily distribution of food waiting on tables is ministry. That's what he's telling you. All right, so we're going to go on here. Uh, <clears throat> it would not be right for us, he said, to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, why wouldn't it be right? Some people think it's, well, because the Word of God is more important work than the ministry of food distribution. That's not what the text is saying. Okay? What the text is saying is the apostles were assigned to minister spiritual food. These other people are assigned to minister 
physical food. Guess what? You have to have both. How would it, what would it be like if you got no ministry of physical food? What would that be like? It would, it would not last long, would it? No, you need the ministry of spiritual food. You need the ministry of physical food. You need both. Both are important in God's kingdom. They're both ministry. And see, that's what it really plays with us because we keep thinking, well, we've turned ministry into a vocation. You know, we, we've turned, I think ministry probably is best understood as a verb, not a noun. Because we, we, we talk about the ministry, it's like it's some special calling that some of us have, the rest of you don't have it, but you can help us by giving us money. Okay? That's how you can support the ministry. That's not consistent with Scripture. Scripture recognizes that God has called us all to various assignments, and it's all ministry, executing the commands of others. Who's the other? God. You're executing the command of God in whatever you're called to do. So if he's called you to be a housewife, a homeschooler, he's called you to be a teacher, he's called you to be a business owner, he's called you to be a salesman, he's called you to be a manager or work with your hands, whatever it is, he made you. He created you. He put you there. He wants you to be his minister doing that work. And if he's called you to teach the scripture, that's just another ministry. That's all it is. It's not more important. They're all important. How many of you would, how many of you appreciate modern plumbing? You appreciate that? My, my wife really appreciates it. We had a visitor from China here uh, a year or so ago with us, and they were trying to get my wife to go to China, and my wife is not that adventuresome. My wife's idea of, of, uh, of, of camping out would be uh, a holiday inn without room service. That would be camping out. So they're talking to my wife about coming to China, trying to convince her to come. I, I've made many trips there, and she has not come with me any farther than Hong Kong. She can handle Hong Kong. Hong Kong's like a U.S. city. But going into China is different. And so they were trying to convince her, hey, it'll be great. We'll make sure you're taken care of. We'll make sure you even have a toilet. <laughs> and she says, what do you use? Oh, just a hole. <laughs> So, are you thankful for modern toilets? Oh, wow. That somebody's ministry was developing modern plumbing. It serves you. God ordained for that. That's just not some creation of the world. That's something God has made to make your life easier so you can do more efficiently what he's called you to do. I mean, that, this is how God works. Okay, I'm going to keep going here. So... We haven't even got to the C4 in this principle yet. So it would not be right for us to neglect the Word of God in order to wait tables because our assignment is the Word of God. Somebody else's assignment is to wait tables. Brothers, now here's what you do. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. So now what what the apostles are saying is, okay, here's how we're going to solve the problem, is we're going to use the C4 principle to identify the people God has called to that ministry of waiting on tables. So first thing, it's you choose. What's choose? That's calling. Okay, you notice the choosing, you don't self-choose. Somebody chooses you, an external person. God works through someone to call you. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. What's that? Character. Here we are, that Holy Spirit thing again. You ever think about, gee, I sure hope my waitress is full of the Spirit. 
I sure hope that cook is full of the Spirit. You ever thought about that? Yeah. Why do you think we can go and safely eat at restaurants? You ever thought about that? How many of you eat out? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we ate out on the way over here, you know. Why do you think we can safely do that? Because God, through his common grace, is restraining sin enough so that even people that aren't walking with him can still keep from poisoning you. That's a gift. But what would it be like to be in a restaurant where God was empowering the people that were working in that restaurant? What would that restaurant look like? It could be off the chart. We may not have ever seen anything like that. But that's the potential that is untapped at this point. But the potential is there. So we want people here that are chosen. They're known to be full of spirit and full of wisdom. What's that? What's wisdom? Capability. Wisdom is capability. Wisdom, let me define these terms for you. Knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. Is that a good definition? It's an understanding of how God's universe works. That's knowledge. Wisdom is the skill and ability to use that knowledge to live well. That's what wisdom is. Okay, so if you have wisdom, you have skill and ability. You have capability. So we have calling, character, capability. Okay, so where's the commissioning? Slide down to the end. After they go through, in fact, let me just, pardon me here, get back to this. Let me just read on down where it says, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and diakonia of the word. We have, this is our second use of diakonia in the text. We have diakonia associated with food distribution, now diakonia associated with the word. You see, there's no difference in scripture. Diakonia is the same. Ministry is the same. It's just where you're assigned to do it. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. What is that? And we call that ordination, don't we? Isn't that what we call it? Yeah. Now, how many of you are called to the workplace? Number of you? Have you been, have you had people pray and lay hands on you and ordain you to the ministry God's called you to? We don't do that, do we? It's like, whoa. You know, there's something wrong with my brain here. It's not quite capturing this because I grew up Baptist. How many of you grew up Baptist? Anybody be Baptist here? You know, I didn't hear any of this stuff. You know, it's, it's taken me years of teaching. You know, people teaching me to, re, to get this and me studying scripture to see this. And, wow, I never heard any of this. But it's right here in the word. It's telling me here, it was so important. This ministry of food distribution was so important. We are going to call, we're going to pray over them, lay hands over them, and impart whatever God wants to impart through us to them so they can do it well. Now that's, one of the things, when you find what it is you're called to do, I encourage you to seek out for Christian leaders to affirm that in you, to commission you to it, like spiritual fathers. Just as 
as Jesse commissioned David and sent him out fully supplied and ready and said, this is where you go, this is what you do, that's what our nation is all about. We're saying we're acknowledging the call of God on your life to do X, whatever X might be. Okay, so is that a powerful text? That see some new things there? Okay, got another 15 minutes. This is, um, how about leadership and management? Ever thought about that? Would you have C4 to be a leader or a manager? Is that possible? Well, let's just take a look at this text. This is out of Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. He chose David. This is God's, God is the he here. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens and from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands. He led them. So what we have here is, is a, a declaration of the C4, David had to be king. Now, this is the same guy that has C4 to be a harpist. Now, what I didn't point out to you, and I should have, is later on in that text in 1 Samuel 16, it says David not only was the harpist, he was also the armor bearer. Oh, he had C4 to that, do that too. And now he has C4 to be king. So you may have C4 to do of various things in your life. There may be steps, a process that you enter into. So now this is kind of the end of his life. We have C4 to be king. So what we have first, we have he chose David. So what's that? That's the calling. And took him from the sheep's pen. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob. So the commissioning is he brought him to be the shepherd. So the calling is you call him out of this and you commission him into this. Okay. So now, so we have the calling, we have the commissioning. So, and then the last, last phrase there, we have David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. So what's integrity of heart? It's character. And what's skillful hands? Capability. Calling, character, capability, commissioning. Okay, you see it? All right. Now you're getting the, kind of, getting the hang of this? Are you seeing the pattern? This isn't one text or even two texts. We're beginning to see this throughout Scripture. So let's look deeper. How about church leadership? Oh, my goodness. Could C4 apply here? Well, you probably know the answer, don't you? Or I wouldn't have this text up here if you didn't know, that. If you didn't know this. Okay. All right. So this is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1. Did we lose something here? Okay, we've lost our... Let's see. If I can get this going back. I think what I did is I unhooked here. Let's see. You got to have faith here. He goes through its start up here. Got to point it up. Okay. I think this is this has got hope. I hope. Whoops, it's still looking for it. Going through the cycle there. Go back to one. There we go. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you, Lord. Okay. So, church leadership. Uh, I don't know what to tell you there. I'm just going to read it to you. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying. 
If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may be conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then I want to read to you out of Titus chapter 1, verse 5. You can go ahead and do what you want to do there. <clears throat> the reason I left you in Crete, this is Paul writing to his spiritual son, Titus. By the way, in the verse prior to that, he calls him his genuine spiritual son. He says, uh, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So I'm just going to read out, read out the, the key uh, references here that point out the C4 principle. First, he says here, if, if you desire to be an overseer, you've set your heart on being an overseer. So what's that? The passion. Remember the passion? The two aspects of calling, the external and the internal. You set your heart on something, there's something in you that says, man, I feel really called to do this. Now, how many of you are, are enamored with the idea of being an elder? Anybody enamored with that? I, I am one, and I'm not enamored with it, okay? I, 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 I've been uh, 14 years of this, and I, I, I'm sure this gentleman can say, tell you the same stories. There are many, many heartaches. Many times you just ache when you see situations and you see people rebelling and unsubmitted and out of order, and you've got to deal with it. So it's, it's, uh, people get excited about the idea of being an elder, but let me tell you, once you get there, it's not nearly as glamorous as you think. So you need to really have something inside of you that tells you, this is what God has called me to do. And I'm willing to pay the price wherever it takes me, however painful it may be, whatever the challenge, I will stay in it. If you don't have that internally, don't do it. If you think there's glory in it, you're in la-la land. That's not where it is. There is many, many times that I have just gone to, gone to bed, you know, just weeping because of situations. So you've got to, and this is true of anything. I'm just using this as an example. In whatever you're called to do, you need to have that internal witness that you know that God has given you a desire, a passion to do this. And now, you've got to look past your flesh. Okay, this is why maturity is so important. The more mature you are in Christ, the easier it is to look past your flesh. Okay, so as you grow in Christ, you recognize the flesh quicker, you get it out of the way, you see what's really here. Has God really put a passion in me to do this thing? So that's the first requirement. You really have that internal passion. You have that call to do that. All right, the second thing he says, he must be above reproach. Now, what's above reproach mean? There's absolutely no charge that can be brought against this person that has any validity to it. Now, somebody may make a charge, an accusation, but there's no, no basis for it. You know, it's a baseless charge. But somebody who's above reproach is absolutely impeccable in how they live. And then he goes through a whole list of character traits. 
And he has a few capability traits in there too. But then the real key capability trait is this. He must manage his own family well. And let me suggest that is a great, great trait for any, any person leading in anything is see how they manage their home. If you can't manage your own home well, how can you take care of anything else? I've had, uh, just real quickly, there have been several times when I've been asked to talk to uh, <clears throat> people about dysfunctional elder teams, which that seems to be the norm more than, uh, than functional elder teams, uh, sadly. And I remember getting this one call one day from a man, and um, he said, I, I need to talk to you about my church leadership. I said, okay, what's going on? He said, well, we got all this debt. I said, debt? Why do you have all this debt? Well, we built this big old building, and we got a fancy furniture and, you know, all this neat A-B equipment. I mean, it's a lot of money, and we didn't have the money, so we borrowed the money to do it. Uh, and I said, well, what, what's that mean? He said, well, basically everything is being cut so we can pay the debt. You know, we're having to lay off people and eliminate stuff, and just we're down to just paying off debt. And I said, well, how did you get here? He said, well, our, our elders decided to do that. I said, who are your elders? He said, well, they're, they're men that attend the church. They're godly men. I said, well, tell me about them. So as he began to describe these men, you know who they were? They were the people that were perceived to be successful in business. They were the people that perceived to have money. And I'm sure that on some level they were thinking, well, we get them as elders, they'll start giving more. Well, it didn't happen. In fact, these guys were used to using debt, you know, in their businesses, so they just brought in and leveraged up the church. You see, I pointed them to this text right here. I said, well, tell me about their families. In almost every case, in fact, I think every case he told me that he knew, had knowledge of, the families were very dysfunctional. You see, the families were sacrificed for mammon, for mammon worship. And then the church was not smart enough to recognize this truth here, and therefore they appointed the wrong people. So the family is what you look at first. He must manage his own family well. So the calling is the heart. The overseer must be above reproach, character. Manage his own family well, that's capability. And he has to do other things too, okay? Like being able to teach, for example. And finally, the commissioning. Appoint elders. Who is this that's appointing? This is Titus. Who's Titus? He is a representative of the Apostle Paul, who is overseeing this group of community of churches, and he is the one that's telling this spiritual son, Titus, you appoint the elders, which is very interesting. How do, how do many elders get recognized today? Congregational vote is a common way, okay? And have we thought, have you ever thought about apostolic authority? Is that something we've kind of lost sight of? It's kind of like going away. It's, that's the old way to do it, and it's not the modern way of doing it. You know, I, to me, apostolic authority has got a lot of significance that we haven't explored, that we need to explore. And it probably would be a very wise practice as we begin to get lined up better with Scripture on how we recognize our church leaders. So you can see here, church leadership, business, civil leadership, artistic work, construction work, whatever it is that you're called to do, you will have C4 to do it. There's a, another thing I, I, I didn't talk to you about, about legal work and dispute resolution. I don't think I've got time to do that.
I've got about six minutes. I don't really have time to do this. But you remember when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt? Remember that? Okay. And uh, now when you have hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people gathered together who are fairly immature spiritually, do you think you might have a lot of disputes? It may be a rather litigious group of people. Okay, well, that's, that's what he had. He had a very litigious group of people. And so um, his father-in-law, who is a pagan named Jethro. Remember Jethro? Okay. He shows up, and he sees what's going on. And he says, Moses, things are out of order here. This shouldn't be. He says, this is way too much of a burden. And he begins then to lay out, this is what you need to do. He says, but you need, what you need to do is select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges over the people at all times. But with, with the difficult cases, they can bring to you the simple cases they can solve themselves. So you see now, we have, we're going to have C4 again here for dispute resolution. It says select. What's Select. It's calling. There is Moses is the caller, and the people he selected are the callees. To select capable men. What's capable men mean? Capability. From all the people, men who fear God. Character. Trustworthy men. Character who hate dishonest gain. And appoint them commissioning. Can you see that? Oh, you can. Oh. Oh, I'm impressed. Okay. So you see again, this time, out of the mouth of a pagan father-in-law, Moses is getting a course correction. Now you think Moses, you know, he knows the will and ways of God, doesn't he? Well, he knows a lot, but guess what? God uses authority, even pagan authority, to direct us into his will and his ways. Wow, this is like, whoa, mind-blower, mind-blower. Well, this is because we, we're not paying attention to what Scripture says. Scripture gives us incredible guidance. Now, one other thing I want to point out to you is that when you line up with what you have called to do, that you will be able to do it. It says, if you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain. And all the people will go home satisfied. I mean, you talk about somebody that's anointed by God who doesn't know God and God still anoints him to speak truth to God's deliverer of Egypt, or deliverer of the Israelites out of Egypt. I mean, that's a powerful way God works. There is, when you find what you have C4 to do, there will be provision for you to do it. And God may use a dysfunctional pagan, you know, authority figure in your life to guide you. It might be an unsaved father. It might be an unsaved employer, an unsaved teacher, or it might be a saved teacher or father, employer. It might be a spiritual father. He has all these authority figures at his disposal, and he decides how he's going to direct you into what you're called to do. And what your job is, is to find your race. And you find your race by finding what you have C4 to do. Now, this, what I, this, is, this to me is, is powerful. When you see this, you say, wow, it, now I see where I need to focus my attention. What is the most important thing you can do for any person? 
to, if you want to bless them, what's the most important thing you could do for them? Bring them to Christ. Introduce them to Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important than that. They must come to Christ if, they're gonna, if their lives are going to you know, do anything of, that's going to count in the kingdom. What's the second most important thing you can do for them? Help them discover their race. Help them find what they have C4 to do. Wow, what does that release? It releases incredible blessing, favor, success, peace, joy, contentment. There's something inside of you that says, this is what God created me to do. This is why I'm here. This is my part in the meta-narrative. I'm going to play it to the glory of God. When people look at me, they're going to see Jesus. Now that's, to me, that's what the kingdom looks like. We should all be living at that level so no matter where we go, who we come in contact with, they see Jesus. By the way, this is the way you should parent. How many of you are parents? Your parents? You know, how many of you said things to your, your children like, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. Anybody said that to them? I've done that. Yeah, we've all done that. Can I say we've lied to them? Because they can only do what they have been created to do. That is do really well. And so we need to tell them, look, we're here to help you discover the destiny and purpose of God. It's our job. One of the things I noticed, I got to watch my first daughter born when she was born 40 years ago. And I noticed, I was, I was in training to be a scientist at the time. I noticed there was no nameplate. Did you all notice that? No nameplate on the kids? You know? Nameplate on that says, this is Lisa. This is why I created her. That would have been real nice. If, you know, the Lord had done that. So, oh, okay. All right, we got it. Now, he's, no, no. He, what he did is left me with a research project. <laughs> now I've got to understand why did God create you, give you to me to steward and to raise you and train you, and what does he want to do with you? So I, I need to discover what she has C4 to do. You see, that's what parenting is, is uncovering the destiny and purpose of God using this principle to then guide them and direct them into the purpose of God for their life, into the ministry that they have, whether it's food distribution ministry, whether it's education ministry, whether it's sales ministry, whether it's being an entrepreneurial as a minister, whether it's being a pilot in, in ministry there, wherever you're called to the ministry. It's God has ordained you there, and that's a role you play in his meta-narrative. So it's not only you. It's your children, your spiritual children, those that you manage. Think about those of you who manage. What's the best thing you can do with each person you manage? Help them find Christ. Then help them find what Christ created them to do using the C4 principle. This is how management should be. And you're going to find, if you start applying this, you probably have a lot of people in your company that are not supposed to be there. In fact, I wish I had time to give you employment statistics, but I don't, and I'm over time. But let me just real quickly say, the key to managing is discipleship. Because as a manager, you have one of two relationships with everyone you manage. 